Welcome, friends, to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we are off, but releasing a From the Vault episode, formerly a Patreon exclusive, for The Never-Ending Story 2, the sequel to the much-beloved children's film uh, Never-Ending Story, which we covered on the main feed. Mikkel Inda, author, famously hated the adaptation, but we had a lot of fun with both the book and uh, the adaptation, and then we wanted to cover two because it covers, like, a lot of what happens in the second half of his novel that got omitted from that original film. Um, so, yeah, this was a fun one, even though we didn't ultimately end up loving the movie too much. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just good to get full context, I think, for this stuff and know, because when you're talking about never-ending story, there's plenty of people, I'm sure, that have seen two that bring the baggage of that film into that conversation. So, you know, I like I like knowing the full story now and, uh, you know, seeing an attempt to create that ending Michael Enda had in his book. But I think if I remember correctly, there's there's some significant differences. Right. Differences. Um, I think this is also an example of just because something might have even good practical effects doesn't mean we're going to like it. Um, you know, as much as we are uh, prone to liking stuff like that, um, that that wasn't enough to save this movie. Um, we get into all the reasons why. Um, so, yeah, hopefully you can enjoy that. We do have a our next episode, like a proper episode is going to be on Rashomon. Um, and the story that it was adapted from in the Grove, which we'll be talking about, and then uh, looking at this, you know, iconic film, which I've never seen. I don't know if I made that clear, but I've never seen this movie. Yeah. So I'm really excited. I, what's funny is that like everyone has seen the influence of this film, though. Right. Like once we once you watch it, you're gonna be like, oh my god, all these things that we're referencing Rashomon, I now can you know see the connective tissue. Absolutely, man. You know I love it when I uh, get those connective tissues and I can start to see the the lineage of like how things came to be. Like I'm excited for that, absolutely. Um, and then also, if that's not quite your thing, or even if it is, we're gonna be following it up with Pinocchio the Guillermo del Toro adaptation that just came out and is up, up for a bunch of awards, I think. I have been holding off watching it because I, and I so badly want to, it's stop motion, it's everything I want, and it's Guillermo del Toro, so I can't wait to see it. There's also like a Pinocchio f- video game adaptation that looks Souls-like. Have you seen this trailer? No. It's supposed no, to be- No, that co- sounds cool. Oh no, dude, it looks so cool. You have to look into it. It's called like The Life of P or something, something about P, um, as in Pinocchio, and it's Pinocchio yeah. inspired, but it looks like- it just looks like a, like a Dark Souls game. It, it's so cool. I'm in, yeah. Yeah, I think it's supposed to come out this year. Anyway, I'm very excited for that. Um, oh, one last appeal. If you are interested in suggesting something for us to cover, um, we are going to be coming up on a quarterly project, probably shortly after following Pinocchio. Um, and if you'd like to get your suggestions in, get them in early. Go to our Patreon. It'll be the pinned post at the top. Comment your suggestion and then make sure to like any other suggestions you see, and then we'll end up taking the top four and putting it on a dedicated poll once it gets closer to time. So we'd love to have your suggestions on there while it's a wide open field. All right, so here's that sequel to a beloved film that we didn't end up loving. Um, but I did want to say, if you are curious about a sequel to a beloved children's film that we did end up liking, um, we also have out on Patreon our latest um, on the Wizard of Oz 2. Return to Oz. Uh, Return to Oz. And we actually did end up liking that a lot. That is what like this movie wished it was. <laughs> and yeah. unfortunately fell shy of that. But um, that would be an interesting comparison to like listen to this episode and then listen to our latest on Return to Oz. Because in some ways, they're kind of similar movies. Anyway, hopefully you enjoy. 
So this month we're going to be talking about George Miller, not not Mad Max George Miller, George Miller uh, and his sequel of the Neverending Story. Okay. The Neverending Sto- Story to the next chapter is what this one's called. Mm. Too bad it's not the other George Miller. <laughs> I know, right? Could have been way more badass. We could have had like fucking Australian desert in yeah. like cars and stuff. Yeah. Uh, no, this is uh, not that and is a very different sort of movie. Yeah. Uh, let's start off by just saying this This is a bad movie. Uh, yeah. And like I like to be the person who's positive for films a lot and I like to give the benefit of the doubt. I was finding it difficult to find things to like about this movie, which isn't usually Agreed. the case. Yeah, and like we talked about how we don't like coming on these recordings and bashing things and every movie has fans, you know, I'm sure there are people who have fond memories of watching this probably when they were kids. That that I think would be the my guess for if anybody has any affection for this movie, it probably hit them at a time in their life where they could just buy into the magical world and liked going back to never ending story, you know, Fantasia and and enough of that makes it positive. But as an adult watching it for the first time, it was pretty awful and hard to <laughs> hard to hold my attention. Yeah, I felt that this movie was a, a, a shining example of not really respecting your audience. Even they're making a kid's movie. They know they're making a kid's movie and then not having the respect to be like kids are smart and, and just sort of giving the most like sort of meandering basic plot line with some really wonky looking characters some you know some familiar friends come back they yeah. might look a little different than before but uh yep <laughs> which is odd i know i know <laughs> and, that you know i know why it happens but it is difficult when everybody has been recast it, it immediately makes it feel like this you know cut rate version of the other film i um, I, I just to me it almost would have made more sense to just make the second half of the story be like his kid or something like Bastion's kid or something like that right somewhere down the line so that you could explain away because it was extremely distracting yeah um, I do think this is a good example of why this second half of the novel didn't get adapted because a lot of the story just doesn't work very well it clashes with what comes in the first half it's a lot of the stuff that I didn't like about the book and it focuses solely on that for this film um, not that I hated it in the book it's just it's like my my you know it's not the stuff that stands out to me. It's not the stuff I remember from reading that book. Um, and it's not the stuff I remember fondly, at least. Uh, I think it's a good, you know, good reminder of why sometimes less can be more and why I think the original never-ending story film would have suffered if uh, if they tried to keep this stuff in there, I think. I could feel them, like, reusing sets many, many times and, like, going back, like, destroying a set so that it would look different and and, like... It just felt like they were they they spent the bare minimum amount of time on trying to create an interesting story and more just sort of like cash back in. Like it just felt like me that it felt like to me they were just trying to bring back Falcor, bring back Atreyu, and send them on an adventure. But but also I don't know some of the stuff really sticks out to me like like defeating the villain by you know wishing for her to have a heart or something like that is so base level oh yeah that was climactic bad. That was moments cringy. like it's it doesn't get much more basic than that and yeah. and to me it's just like time could have been taken to change it from you know they clearly did change it from the original work for sure uh, and change it for the better and try to figure out how to break this story and make it something that's its own but also still connected to the original 
And to me, this just literally felt like they wanted to just get something out that was a sequel to the first one because of the success. And I actually have something here I'd like to read. Okay. So the film was to begin production soon after the release of the first film's success to cover the remaining second half of the novel that the previous film left out. Production was delayed for six years, though, to, due to Michael Endes suing Warner Bros. over his hatred of the first film and the way it turned out. Enda felt that this adaptation's content deviated so far from the spirit of his book that he requested that production either be halted or the film's title be changed. When the producers did neither, he sued them and subsequently lost the case. Enda called the film a gigantic melodrama of kitsch, commerce, plush, and plastic. And that's talking about the first one. Yeah, and if and if those are his thoughts about the first movie, I can't even imagine that he cared to comment about the second movie and, you know, the fact that he didn't sue them again over the fact that they were using the never-ending story title and everything. I guess yeah. once you've lost once, it's not a great... He doesn't maybe he didn't think he could win another lawsuit, but... I don't know. I mean, I, it sounds like you didn't see anything specifically about this one, but I did note that his name appears at the, in the opening, you know, credits for this film, which is not yeah. the case in the other one. So for whatever reason, he was okay with that. Um, it was the second half of the book that he really, really wanted to be adapted. I don't know. It's sometimes like, you know, authors aren't the best uh, judges for what makes a great adaptation uh, for their own work. And, yeah. you know, sometimes they're just happy to see it, period. And, and maybe quality doesn't matter as much. Right. It's interesting to think that he maybe realized after the lawsuit that he it was out of his hands and he just needed if he had his name on it he could at least see some some sort of the profits or something like that and I assume in some way they must have paid him something. If for anybody this. has any details on that, let us know on uh, how yeah. he actually felt about this adaptation. Um, yeah, so let's let's try our best here. What yeah. was there anything that stood out to you that you did like? What were things that worked for you, if if anything? Um, certain effects. I. I, I so I'm going to hit with another criticism, but like I, I, I was like, this is an example of like physical practical effects are not always great. <laughs> um, some of this stuff just looked silly or it looked cheap. Um, what specifically it, uh, like the giants and stuff? Uh, well, some of the out, some of the costumes, um, the, the, the big bird costume, I thought looked pretty bad the whole time. Um, yeah, the giants were weird because they were very inconsistent with how they would move. Um, sometimes they were extremely stiff. Other times they would walk and like you, it just like never passed the smell test for like something believable. And instead it, it always just felt fake and, um, yeah, it just it, it, some of it was just overly goofy. You could tell that it was like plastic or what have you. Like you could see the the fakeness of it, um, and it's tough because like I think it is kind of a fine line because a lot of the stuff at first glance looks very similar to the effects in the first movie, but um, there is a you know there is a fine line that makes a lot of what happened in the first movie work and a lot of what happens here not work. Yeah, it's interesting because we see characters like Rockbiter and Falcor again. Yeah. And I think those were two that you could say prob looked, you know, better than the rest of the, yeah, the effects, I, I think. Um, but and, and something specific, uh, Falcor's eyes in this movie are red. I found to be like really different. Yeah. And I couldn't tell if I liked it or not. I thought that it kind of added something. I don't but know why. Also couldn't it was tell. a weird choice. Like, why does he have bright red eyes? Like Red that? eyes now. Yeah. I, I don't remember. I don't think he had that in the first movie. I don't remember. I don't that. think he did either. Yeah, and Rockbiter clearly they had built something. They had to build it again, 
something that looked just like the original Rockbiter, and it didn't seem like it was able. Obviously, the person was just in one location, moving the head around, yeah. maybe the arms a little bit, that kind of thing. It's not like Rockbiter looked amazing in the first movie. So, like I said, it's kind of a fine line. There was a certain sense of scale that I think worked better in that in the first one in comparison to this. It just felt like the same shot over and over in this movie, and in in the original, I remember seeing like a lot more of the sense of scale against other For characters sure. and things like that. I, I, in particular, the Rockbiter scene in the first film, um, one of the things we praised was when he bites into the stones and it comes raining down and it like yeah. actually looks dangerous. Like there's these boulders flying out of the sky. Here they have a similar moment where he bites into some stone and then it just rains on this like rock baby and the rock right. baby like just looks upset and like you have no sense of scale because you don't know how big the rock baby is. It's not one of our characters we care about. It, yeah. it looks kind of silly itself. So um, yeah, it just I agree. There's just a bunch of stuff like that that doesn't work. But it's not just the effects. Um, I also think a lot of the acting, whether due to the actors themselves or direction or writing or a combination of all three, um, it just felt stiff and not mm-hmm. emotionally resonant. So uh, often, especially with Bastion, he'd be trying to convey some sort of emotion and, and it always felt like either overdone or underdone or something right. was just a little bit off from the moment. Yeah, I can specifically remember this moment where he was supposed to be, it was when the Atreyu fell and yeah. he's looking down at Atreyu in, in malice. Like he's all, he's angry and kind of hates him. Yeah. And then has this moment where he like needs to switch emotions to be like, so he's like scared, then then mad, then sad or something yeah. and regretful. And like, he's trying to convey all three at, at, at a time. And it's, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, but the way that it comes out and the scene yeah. just did not work for it's me. It's incredibly tough. You know, and we've, we've talked a lot about child acting on the podcast because a lot of films, you know, have to employ it and to various levels of success. It's a hard thing for these young actors to do well, um, especially complex emotions like what you just described, like going between three different extreme emotions and having it feel believable and not like it kind of does here where it's kind of silly and over the top. That's really hard to do. And so it's a big ask. And and I think you have to have a director who is patient and knows how to work with a child and can help them get that performance. And so I don't want to just completely put it at, you know, at the feet of the actor, but I, I think that there's there's a lot that goes into making these performances work that just wasn't present here. Yeah, and I think you set me up perfectly for something that I noted and then something I found in my research. So the thing that I noted was so much of this feels like... Um, you know, some of the costuming and some of the things feel like television to me. Feels yeah. like the the fast paced nature of television. You have to shoot things so quickly. You don't have time to get your shots perfect. People have to, you know, you don't have quite as many takes because things need to get done. Like soap opera acting can be like this sometimes, right? It's yeah. got to go quick. You got to go quick. And so then I, and I, I just found myself thinking about that. But I was like, you know, it's a it's a sequel to a pretty massive movie. I assume that they had the budget and the time. And I read as labor rules regarding ch- child actors limited their working schedules, George Miller decided to only rehearse scenes once before filming and maximize the time with the children on set by shooting with as many as three cameras on every scene. This created a problem as Miller's fear of falling late wound up making the film so ahead of schedule that the effects team had not completed the necessary work for later scenes. Interesting. So there was some sort of production stuff that was adding to this problem, it sounds like. 
it, it well to me not having the rehearsal explains the, yeah. the performances yeah it does. and you know and then the not having performance means that you're not getting to do camera rehearsals things like that that can help you do more dynamic camera movements and things like that that'll add some production value um you're and it's going to turn into something that looks like something you could see on tv yeah and i went through his filmography and surprisingly or not so surprisingly he directed mostly mostly television up to this point and then kind of went back and and did more television after this okay um and there's nothing wrong with doing television you know during that some era, amazing think, television directors out there so right. yeah and i think that people put like especially in this era people would stick their nose up at a television director versus a film director there's a difference and but but that's not to say people didn't create like some amazing television and uh but I can just see sort of the attention to detail that somebody who's used to the super fast paces wants to get in and get out, make their day, um, and sort of some of the sacrifices that can come from that all throughout this movie. So you were you were mentioning like what was good here. And um, I do want to there's like a, a, a general theme that was present in the work and is present here that I think is good and I think uh, is explored in a way that is interesting. And and that's you know, how stories affect us and how they change us and how um, important that is to our lives and how our lives themselves are stories, you know, like that all gets touched on. Um, There's a refrain that comes back where it's like, we're all a part of a never ending story. And whether or not it's always delivered in a way that is powerful is, you know, (laughs) clearly it isn't, but the line itself is good. And the idea is, is smart. Um, there's another part where, uh, I think it's the bookstore owner, uh, Coriander, um, says like, have you ever reread it, like read a book again? Um, it changes or something like that. And, and I liked that because of course that is very true, but also false, right? Like in false in the sense that like, it's the same book, like it's the same words that hasn't changed, but you have changed. And, um, Maybe it's a little trite, but I think that that is something that readers will experience um, revisiting things, especially, you know, that's something I've noted on this podcast, reading something to cover it versus like, oh, I read this 10 years ago or 15 years ago and how it struck me then versus what it strikes me as now. And it can be kind of incredible, the difference uh, that can make. So there is truth there and, and sort of that nebulous nature of story and our interaction with it. Um, is some of the most interesting ideas from the second half of Inda's novel. And they are present here in a way that um, justifies sort of the existence of this film in some, in some ways. But um, I, I just wish it had been pulled off better. Yeah, I mean, I, I can get on board with that too. Like there are things that I think are carryovers from the original work and from the first movie that that are kind of continuing along the same path but just didn't necessarily hit as squarely um so i mentioned at the end of our first movie episode of the never ending story um i always found it weird that that bastion doesn't have a moment to like bring the book back to coriander because it felt like a full circle kind of thing to do and then here we get the implication that he did bring it back and then he steals it again. Yeah. <laughs> like he just has to steal it again. It, it felt like they were rehashing several moments from the original story just to like be visual reminders or, yeah, or there's the you. stuff with like his his dad not caring about him and stuff. And you're like, wait, 
I felt like there was like a little bit of this was that was kind of handled in the first. I know yeah. it wasn't directly, but it was implied. But it turns out that like there's no growth between the characters. They're kind of having it both ways with Bastion too, because he clearly has been to Fantasia before. But it doesn't. We don't get any like sense that this is the ki- same kid who went through it all. Like he flew on Falcor in the in Earth. Like what what happened? To all that. He's afraid to jump from the high dive and everything. Like he's looking for courage. And you're like, I I felt like that was kind of implied that he got that yeah. at the end of the first. He movie. almost seems like surprised about the never ending story until he isn't. You know, like yeah. It's it really felt like they were trying to play it both ways. They're like, oh, for people who never saw the first one, let's kind of introduce it like it's all new to him. But then also for the people who did see the first one, we want to like do a like a wink and a nod towards it, but have the character yeah. basically be a blank slate. Yeah, I don't want to read a full synopsis here because I feel like we can kind of go through this somewhat chronologically. But sure. so we've kind of talked about that opening scene at this point, and then we get into Fantasia and we meet nimbly. Uh, we get yeah, that's uh, that bird, the Birdman with the really, really. I don't know. I just did not like the design of his outfit. <laughs> How did you feel about him nearing the end when he like became like a like he turned? Totally saw it coming. As soon as he saw the first memory, I was like, okay, so he's gonna he's gonna like he's gonna become a, a convert essentially from viewing right. these memories. And I don't know, man. It's just the, the having like this human face behind this big beak and. <laughs> I definitely thought he was going to die. Um, I thought that he was oh, yeah. because he turned, he was going to die, and it would be like this heartbreaking moment. Oh, no. We don't get any of that like emotional haymakers that the first movie has. I, don't, I wouldn't say anything like that really occurs here. No. Yeah. Uh, they do deal with the death of his mother a little more, which is, you know, a sad Well, note and he's to kind of on. forgetting her, which is sad. Right. Yeah. And that's sad in itself, for sure. Um, but yeah, so uh, another thing that we should definitely talk about is so the emptiness. <laughs> Yeah. which is this next this is the this is the villain of, of this in the same way that in the in the first one was the nothing right the nothing yeah so we're just like really rehashing something like that again because the emptiness is basically the nothing yeah and i mean i guess they're trying to touch on again this is a sequel this is like the second half of the same book so they're trying to link it but it's like it's different but not really that different it's just right. it's just feels odd um yeah. i did, How did think Saeed strike you as like the villain who's so i got i got really strong uh wicked witch of the west or whatever um it it felt to me like the director here was like well i'm gonna lean on lean heavily on um wizard of oz yes thank you um you know we had like essentially uh, you know uh, uh, was it nimbly is the name of the character he's nimbly, like yeah, he's flying basically monkey a flying monkey there's like a yeah. scene where he comes in and he's behaving very similarly he flies out and does her bidding she's very witch-like um yeah i don't know it felt like they, they he was t- drawing a lot of inspiration from that film um it really does feel that way to me and, too. and uh, that is just a clear touchstone i think for for this director and I don't know. It's uh, the Neverending Story one seems so unique and different, and and you know we talked about how it's it's German and kind of not that typical Americanized version of fantasy that we we've seen, and and it feels like something really unique. And to to take this and instead push it in the direction of an Wizard of Oz, um, I don't know. It just kind of cheapened everything, and and made it not like very little felt fresh about this yeah i mean totally agree with you there it did feel like something we've seen a hundred times almost and all the beats all the ways that they're able to outsmart the villains and everything like i said before the ending feels so contrived like it's just the most the most like 
you could have seen it from a mile away. But uh, Atreyu's back. How do we feel about Atreyu being back? And uh, did know, you f- did it not feel like Atreyu to you? Did you feel like no? He seemed like almost a different character in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, childlike Empress, same kind of thing. For yeah, me. all all been recast. Um, yeah, it's I don't know, man. I, I'm struggling here. Like this movie's not good, and it's hard for like every time every time you talk about something, I'm like, yeah, that was bad. Uh, I don't know how to like. <laughs> talk about it in a way that's not just completely shitting on it um but i mean none of it worked none of it worked very well i i don't know what else to say about it i mean there were moments too like where some big threat would come up like the giants and they would deal with just one like there was like there's like the, the whole town's getting invaded by giants one falls into the acid and then the threat is over and everything's fine and it happened several times in the movie where it's just like they deal with one piece of a larger problem, and then that rep- that means that the problem is solved. So, like, it's just on a like base level, the plot wasn't working. Like, it was it was taking shortcuts. It felt like again, like it wasn't respecting the audience, right? I got a couple of weird moments to bring up for you. So, you just talked about the giants attacking. There's the moment when he like sort of slides into that hidden compartment on the ship and slides down into that prison with those weird creatures the down place there and of like mysterious plots or something or yeah. yeah, the ship of mysterious plots, something like that. Really weird. It's a group of like five or six different beings standing around mm-hmm. in a circle and one of them's like a floating lady, one of them's a woman playing a harp, one of them's mm-hmm. just like a mud man. Um, <laughs> uh, there's also like a volcano man volcano thing. man yeah it's very there's like and there's like other like i think there was a few others that didn't even say anything or were just kind of hanging out in the background man it's weird that whole town with with all the people and their and their like is that emerald fancy city looking gowns it's very emerald city yeah yeah um it's, yeah i don't know none of none of it was as interesting as is what we got in the first movie. just a weird really random weird scene for him to slide into this this area and then the mud man was so off-putting yeah was, oh man really tough to look at but yeah. uh that was weird another one you talked about like fighting giants and they get to the point where they get to the palace and they're trying to capture zaid and uh <laughs> has this plan with these his, their warriors or whatever he pulls all the eggs out and then these like toy oh, yeah. toys to come out and start exploding and killing them and stuff like what a ridiculous they're moment. like they're like being powered by fireworks it looks like like incredibly weird what a moment that was I'll well and then, he, and, and then right after that or right somewhere in there he summons a weapon he's like we need a weapon to tray you and then he wishes for a weapon and he gets the paint the paint can and then he like sprays what like again there's multiple giants he sprays like one or two in the eyes one falls over and explodes for some reason and then threat over like he looks around, yeah. threats over. And there's no more giants around. Yeah. Hey, that's how it goes. Uh, one of the moments that I found to be extremely aggravating and would have definitely bothered me as a kid is when he's just willy nilly using the the wishes to like create a step. Oh per yeah, wish. Oh, a new a new wish per step. I, I I did I did write that like I guess at that point he has no idea that he's losing his memories per wish. Yeah, but, it, but it would just be ridiculous. so much more efficient, right? right? Yeah. From an efficiency standpoint, like, can you please just ask for an entire staircase at this point? Yeah, yeah, it's very, very maddening. Clearly, what they were trying to do there is, you know, highlight how how much he's just wasting these wishes and losing his memories. I, I did think it was probably necessary to introduce this visual tracking of the memories lost in these little orbs. I actually kind of like that thing too. That's kind of clever. 
I like that. And like the, the fluid would drain out yeah. and like, the orbs would be below. And it just, like you yeah. said, a visual representation. Like I found it to be kind of creepy and weird and yeah. kind of like that. And I think it's necessary. I think you need that, especially for kids, to, like under, to understand what is kind of a difficult concept to wrap your mind around of this, you know, you're losing a memory every time you make a wish. And like you, it, you would forget that. But instead, we have this visual reminder of like, here's the memories. You can look in them and see what they are as they're going out. None of that's present in the book. Um, yeah. And I think it helps here. I have something else that wasn't present in the book that I, I want to get your take on. How did you feel about other than so there's one thing that I didn't like about this, and that's the fact that like they started to lean really heavily on just like voiceover to explain like what was going on, how Bastion was feeling and all this stuff. And it was yeah. done by using Barney, the father, as he's reading through the book, he would sort of let you know what was going on. And I, I, w- I was wondering, other than the voiceover, which I wasn't a fan of, did you like the fact that we got his de- father to like sort of go into the story? It's different than the, than the book. I just didn't know if it added I something. Mostly, I mostly did. Um, it did seem like underdeveloped plot line like he doesn't go into the story he he just reads it and kind of follows it until bastion comes home he does speak to him and and then at the end bastion's like of course i heard you although i I don't i don't i didn't feel like i saw him hearing him in the in the story i don't know maybe it was implied or something but um i did kind of want a little more like maybe he goes into fantasia too Something, you know, I like mm-hmm. the idea of including the father in this, um, but it, it, again, it felt like they didn't maybe go far enough with it. Also, he doesn't really behave in a way that sold me as like a father whose son is missing. Yeah. Right. Like he's I couldn't. The <sighs> fact that he kept saying the engineer thing was it was really bugging me. I was like, you can't, you can't do that. You can't just go around saying I'm an engineer. I'm an engineer. I see what's what yeah. I see something and that's how it is or whatever. That's how he's trying to explain how he's like this logical thinker. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, God, it's not working. And then uh, although I will say my Coriander. father is an engineer and uh, he doesn't go around saying that. But <laughs> um, it was it was giving me an interesting nostalgia for being a kid at this time and having a okay. father who's yeah. an engineer. And I don't know, like sometimes it does feel like difficult to explain certain things to, to people who don't have that sort of creativity on their mind all the time i don't know um they just think think a different way um but that's all just personal stuff i'm bringing in it's it's not really it doesn't really work that well in the movie yeah let's talk about coriander and how like you know that wink and a nod from the first never-ending story that like he kind of knew bastion needed to do, is kind of elaborated in this story it's like coriander now is like orchestrating him coming back and being like, you can't go back into the, you've already read the story. And when he leaves, he's smiling again. And then Coriander vanishes in like a few hours, the whole story's gone and he's gone. You can't find him anywhere. And I'm like, okay, so are they introducing this sort of situation where Coriander is like a full on part of the never ending story? I know he kind of seemed like he was the, the bastion before bastion, like he had gone through and he knows Fantasia really well, but uh, now it seems like he might have been magical all along. Why? Yeah. Why? Why does he? How is he able to disappear? Is he a magical being, somehow tied to Fantasia? Um, is he some sort of wizard? I, I don't know. It's it's kind of unexplained, yeah. but um, it he did. Is that the same actor from the? I was, I was yes. trying to figure it out because I, I think that's like the, the one person who actor, yeah. who who felt like a, a through line. Um, which is kind of cool, I guess. I I love the shop itself. It does seem to have like a weird spatial problem. Of they showed this establishing shot of it basically being a 
you know, this like very pointed building corner store. Yeah. Corner store. And he walks in and it's got like, it's really wide and, and very dark when what we just saw a building that clearly had lots of windows. So magic. Yeah. It doesn't really line up. (laughs) Um, it's just like a, it's a thing that you don't notice when a filmmaker is able to like use some care and make sure that when they're establishing shots line up with the interiors. Right. Um, because of Mm -hmm. course this happens all the time where the interior is not actually what the interior of what you're showing, but you have to make sure that you sell it, that it is to keep that illusion Mm -hmm. alive. And it just, it didn't seem like the, the care was done here to even make that line up. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the guy himself, I don't know. It's fine. It, 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 it doesn't really go anywhere much like many things in this. Like, what are we supposed to take away from all that? What does it all mean? Like, yeah, I I like from the first movie. I always had this theory that he was like Bastion before Bastion. He was the person who picked up the book, engaged with it, was the hero of the story, and then was like passing it on to the next generation. And I think that this kind of, I guess you could still say that in a way. But he also seems magical at this point. Like he disappeared in a day, like a few hours or whatever. Yeah. So there's something magical going on there, whether it's Fantasia power or not. Yeah, it kind of raises more question than it, questions than it answers. And um, yeah, I like your your take on that. I agree. Like I kind of assumed he had at one point read the story and and maybe uh, helped him to love stories. And that's why he has a bookshop now. And like, you know, he's become sort of a uh, caretaker for this book because he knows its power. Um, but that doesn't mean he's a magician <laughs> or, or whatever. And, and kind of seems like he is here. Very odd. Also the, the, how do you feel about Oren sort of transforming and coming out of the book? And then the way like the snake popped out and like hissed at him one time. And like, it was, <laughs> yeah. I don't know that it was like a certain touch of magic that was un, unlike the first film. Yeah. I guess I liked it in the fact that I, I it's so interesting to me because in the story, it all kind of, in the original novel, it all flows together. Like he gets the Orin and then it's used. And like, so in this situation, he had the Orin at the end of the first movie, then put it back seemingly, then put the book back and then came back to it. And then the Orin came out of the book. And it's just all very interesting, I guess, like the ways that it's like, it's contrived to like work. And but the effect, you know, just it popping out, you know, I appreciate that for what it was. It was it was kind of fun. I liked that it did that. The hand going into the book didn't look amazing, but uh, it was what it was. It, it kind of takes away from it kind of starts to blur the lines way more of like magic being in the real world. Whereas I think the only real magic we saw from the first one was just um, Falcor coming into the to attack the bullies. Yeah, I mean, man, and, and you touched on this at the beginning, but uh at the end, the uh, I wish you have a heart or wish you had a heart or something is, is like what right. his final wish is. It's so such a weird thing to throw out there. I was like, wait, what? Like, I was not expecting him to wish that. And then, like, of course, it right. works out great. But like. What? You know, I, like, what if she's like, I already have a heart. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, yeah, that could have been the case. Like, uh, what, are you, what do you think pumps my blood? <laughs> yeah. It's like the ultimate situation of the hero being so selfless that they're willing to, you know, sacrifice themselves for even the villain who they hate or whatever. And like they ultimately win the day because they're so selfless. And like, I don't know, it just kind of came out of nowhere, like you said. But it's again, but it's 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 out of nowhere. Didn't really see it coming. And yet it's still one of the most like, I don't know. 
cringy overused kind cringy of moments. cringy yeah yeah endings you could have come up with yeah uh and she like blows up and then blasts light everywhere brings fantasia back and then the the childlike emperor shows up and she's like i know how to get you home you have to jump off a giant watery of course right situ- bring yeah. it back bring <laughs> it back again, to the to the bravery moment of him needing to jump which like i don't know man that was i i know that you know gym classes were different back in the day but that was pretty tough seeing him be like taunted by the entire class and yeah well not to mention i just thought like this i'm like i'm thinking like these kids are definitely going to fall off the diving board the wrong way like forcing kids to jump yeah, off the it's like you're terrified like of heights but you know i'm just going to taunt you and we're all going to peer pressure you until you jump off i get that that yeah i get that that probably that, was kind of realistic for happen, the time yeah. but but like still the the idea of being like you want to be on the swim team this is diving, not really swimming. But exactly. Like, <laughs> That's what I was going to say, too. I'm like, I want to be on the fucking swim team, not the diving team. They're right. not going to make me do this. Di- like, you don't see Michael Phelps doing this dive before he goes and swims the relay. Yeah, but you know? when he first, the first day of swim class, they he had to to prove that he <laughs> right. could do it. You know, yeah. that's all part of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, man, this movie. Um, so, uh, I mean, I guess it wasn't as bad as Exorcist 2. But it's up there, and it's one of the worst movies we've watched yet, I think, as a bonus episode. Um, I have no desire to see number three, um, personally. <laughs> we might have I, to do I, it, though. We might have to force ourselves to do it. We'll see. I, I hope not. I mean, there's other bonus things we could do, so... Um, I don't know if anybody's even going to enjoy this. If you like hearing us in pain, I guess this could be fun, fun to you, but... Um, if you have not seen this movie and you're curious, I do not recommend it. Um, I think this is, movie only exists for kids who desperately want to see more never-ending story at the time. Like, they want to go back to this. And then even then, I think m- half of them are going to be very disappointed. Maybe the other half would be okay with it. Um, and That then, is the one thing that I walk away with, too, is, like, it's totally for kids. It's not yeah. even slightly for anyone else other than, like, a child. Only for children. And then... If you are really into Mikel Inda's novel and you really wanted to see the second half, you agree with him and you're like, that desperately needed to happen. I can see you wanting to watch this, but then still being disappointed because it's not going to be what you want. Like, it's not what you wanted out of it, but you might be curious enough to see it because you just want to see the representation of some of that stuff. And it does do that kind of. Yeah. So Yay. we watched it, so you don't have to. But uh, <laughs> yeah, hopefully we'll uh, see. You know, I say, time. you know what I think about it is, uh, watch the trailer. I think uh, you watch the trailer, you're gonna get to see Falcor, you're gonna get to see the new kid. That's all you uh, need. <laughs> that's all you need to see see some of that stuff. Rockbiter's back. Yeah, and then you can fill in the gaps. I think. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. This was, you know, this was a fun process. But until next time, keep adapting. <laughs>